Welcome to another installment of our LBS Physics Deep Dive. After exploring the world of experimental physics at CERN in our first video documentary in episode 93, we'll stay in Geneva for this one, but this time we'll dive into theoretical physics. We'll explore mysterious components of the universe, like dark matter and dark energy. We'll also see how the study of gravity intersects with the study of particle physics, especially when considering black holes and the early universe. Even crazier, we'll see that there are actual experiments and observational projects going on to answer these fundamental questions. Our guide for this episode is Valérie Domke, permanent research staff member at CERN, who did her PhD in Hamburg, Germany, and postdocs in Trieste and Paris. When she's not trying to decipher the mysteries of the universe, Valérie can be found on boats, as she's a big singing fan. This is Learning Vision Statistics, episode 95, recorded September 6, 2023. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, for any info about the podcast, learnbasedstats.com is la place to be. Show notes, becoming a corporate sponsor, supporting LBS on Patreon, unlocking Bayesian merch, everything is in there. That's learnbasedstats.com. If with all that info, a Bayesian model is still resisting you, or if you find my voice especially smooth and want me to come and teach Bayesian stats in your company, then reach out at alex.andora at pymc-labs.io or book a call with me at learnbaystance.com. Thanks a lot, folks, and best Bayesian wishes to you all. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo-controlled science like I'm Richard Feynman? Hello, my dear Bayesians. Some of you have reached out for advice and coaching in parallel to my online courses on intuitivebase.com. So, to help you, I have started something new. If you go to topmate.io slash alex underscore Andorra, you can pair your online course with my 15-hour or 20-hour coaching packages to get a fully premium learning path. Each week, we'll get on a one-to-one call and we'll walk through any question, difficulty, or roadblock that you may have to jumpstart your learning even more. Again, that's topmate.io slash alex underscore Andorra. And now, let's talk theoretical physics with Valérie Domke. Valérie Domke, willkommen nach Learning Bayesian Statistics. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. I am really happy to have you on the show. Again, a physics-packed episode. So I'm really happy about that. And, and I have a lot of questions for you. I think you're the first theoretical physicist to come on the show. So that's cool. We're going to talk about topics a bit different than those we talk about when we have uh, experimental physicists on the show. So that's cool. More diversity for the listeners. And also when that episode is going to air by the magic of time travel, episode 93 will have been published. So that's the one at CERN. So the very special video documentary I did at CERN with Kevin Kaif. So if listeners haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend it. And that one, of course, I recommend mainly watching the YouTube video because I recorded and edited it firstly for video format. You have access to the audio format also, but I'm telling you, it's going to be funnier in video. So now to actually complete what we talked about in episode 93, where Kevin does a lot of fun experiments at CERN. Today, we are going to talk about another part of physics that's done at CERN, thanks to you, Valerie. But first, before doing that, let's start with your origin story. 
how did you come to the world of theoretical physics and how sinuous of a path was it? It was more of a path that I ended up on without honestly thinking about it too much. It's been a topic that has fascinated me since I was quite young, reading mm-hmm. science fiction books and, and the like. And I basically was just following my interests, taking the course at university that, that interests me most without thinking too much about where that would lead me in the end. Mm-hmm. And it was basically only when I was doing my PhD that I realized, wow, I'm actually working on cosmology and these big open questions of the universe, which is something I was dreaming about as a kid. And, and somehow I got there without somehow without too much planning, but just following mm-hmm. what I thought was the most interesting thing for me to do at every step. Hmm. Oh, yeah. So it's really like the call of passion for it's you. In a sense. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. That's also one of the cool things of this kind of job in physics or, I don't know, airplane pilots or firefighters. You can dream about them already as you were, as you're a kid and then make that your job. I'm, I personally love my job, but I'm afraid I cannot say that I dreamt about patient statistics when I was a kid. Like I never told when I was five year old, Oh, I want to be a patient statistician. That's not how it works, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I know that must be, that must be quite disappointing to a lot of people, but I had to burst that bubble because I get a lot of questions about that. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would also say that you kind of have to really dream about it or be enthusiastic about it because doing science, you always encounter moments where nothing works. Yeah. And if you're not passionate about actually solving the problem, mm-hmm. it's, you're just going to get stuck. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a very good point. And uh, that's where actually statistics get back in the mix because that's, I would say that's the same for programming and the kind of statistics at least I do where you are going to get a lot of bumps along the way. And I always say to beginners that models never work, only the last version uh, the last iteration of a model is going to work. And even then you just have to be satisfied with good enough. So that's a field where you have to become comfortable failing all the time. First, be comfortable with making mistakes and failing. And also where you need to be driven by passion, because if you don't have that inherent passion, you're not going to still be driven to solve those numerous data analysis issues and bugs and and stuff like that. So now I'd like to talk about what you do, actually, what you're doing nowadays, because we know you dreamed about, you dreamed about doing that since you were a child, but how would you define the work you're doing nowadays? And what are the topics that you are particularly interested in? I think there's probably two parts to that question, right? One is Mm -hmm. how does an everyday day actually look like? And, and mm-hmm. the other one is, okay, what are the big topics I'm interested in? So to start with the former, so what my day does not look like <laughs> is that I sit in my office all by myself waiting the fantastic idea that is going to win me a Nobel Prize. That's the image I had maybe as, as a kid of how a, a theoretical physicist would work. Mm-hmm. But that's not at all what my day looks like. So I'm, it's a lot discussing with people, listening to talks, going to conferences, reading papers, discussing over coffee on the blackboard, over lunch, and then progress comes bit by bit. But it, it, it does. there's never a lack of things to work on. There's never a lack of interesting questions. There's only always a lack of time to decide what is the most interesting question of all the questions to work on, <clears> because there's really a lot of things that we don't understand. And that brings me a bit to the overarching theme of my research. <laughs> so I work on the intersection of, of particle physics and cosmology. So meaning kind of the, the physics of the very, very smallest particles, the, the fundamental building blocks of nature. And at the same time, the physics of the very largest scales. So the, the largest scales we can observe in our universe and how the latter can teach us something about the former. So how from astrophysical or cosmological observations, we can learn something about what is really the nature of the fundamental building blocks of nature. Yeah, so small topics. Fundamental building blocks of nature. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I'm actually curious. So, of course, we're going to talk about your, the, like the projects you work on a day to day a bit more. But also, I'm curious now that you brought up basically how, what your days look like concretely. Yeah. I'm wondering what's the part of basically solitary work 
with pen and paper. What's the proportion of that in, in, in comparison to, as you were saying, collaboration with people, exchange of ideas and things like that? Because I think when you tell people you're a theoretical physicist, and that's definitely the case when you tell people you're a statistician, most of the people imagine that you're just doing math on a blackboard. So most of the time, which is not true if you're a statistician. So yeah, I'm curious how it is on your side. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably similar. I mean, if I get one or two hours on block to actually sit down and do a calculation, that's rather the exception than the rule. So it is, of course, part of my job and I enjoy it a lot. Like sometimes just to have time just to think really thoroughly about a problem, either analytically, so pen and paper mm-hmm. or coding. But it's not, it's usually not like very long stretches at a time because then you either you hit a problem or you hit a solution. And in either case, that's the point to, to reach out to your collaborators and discuss the next steps. Hmm. That's interesting because for me, now I'm using more and more the excuse of teaching <laughs> to you know dive deep in a, in a topic, in a project, because, well, I have to be able to explain it properly to students. So that's actually, these are actually the good occasions and rare, quite rare occasions where I can just be myself working on the computer or sometimes with a pen and paper and really understand deeply a topic that I need and want to understand. Because otherwise, yeah, you have so many, so many other projects and solicitations that can be hard to actually take the time just for yourself and, and focus on this. So I, I'm the same. Yeah. I do appreciate these solitary moments, although I'm happy that they are not 90% of the work. I have to say. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> and actually, so you're a very math savvy person. So of course, you know about Bayesian stats, but I'm curious if you were introduced to Bayesian methods actually in your graduate studies or before, and if you use them from time to time in your own work? No, so I never received any type of formal or informal training. So it's, it's of course, it's something we need to know in, in the sense that we deal with empirical data, even if I myself don't usually deal directly with the empirical data, but I deal with the processed empirical data or I deal with the, the publications that people have written on the data, and, and then I, I need to evaluate, interpret continue to work from there. But for that, of course, I need to understand the significance of certain experimental results. Mm-hmm. So I would say, I mean, I have a, a fundamental understanding of them, but it's not something that actually on a day-to-day basis, I really am like deep in the in the details of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. I more work at the kind of one level away, right? So that I take... I need to understand what is the significance of that result, right? But once I've understood that, I can basically work directly with the result without having going to back to the to the data yeah. at every step. Which is quite a luxury, I have to say. I'm, I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> yes, I'm uh, very happy that there's people <laughs> who do the work that I don't need to do. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a very good point. I like that. And if you go listen to episode 93, you'll see the, the difference between basically that kind of work that Valerie does and the experimental physics work where statistics is way more present and, and of course, patient statistics is ex- extremely helpful. So I find that super interesting to, to notice. Just because you don't use patient stats, Valerie, doesn't mean that your work is not interesting. I have to put that out there. <laughs> On the contrary, uh, I find it fascinating. So let's dive in because one of your areas of interest is to go beyond the standard model phenomenology to probe it, if I understood correctly. So can you tell us what that means? And maybe first define the standard model for us. So the standard model basically reflects our current understanding of these fundamental building blocks of nature. So it, it contains what we think are like elementary particles, which are no longer further dividable into even smaller particles. Mm-hmm. There's not many of them. There's basically a handful of them, depending how you count. And and we think that these fundamental particles, together with the interactions between these particles, that they explain all of kind of nature, the way it surrounds us, right? So all everything that we can grasp, grasp or experience here on Earth. And the, the standard model describes basically this. So it describes which building blocks are there and how do they interact with each other. And now going beyond 
the standard model, because a model is always a model, right? So it means it describes nature to the best of our knowledge. But most models are incomplete at some level, right? Because it's only a way that we describe nature, not actually the fundamental theory of nature. Mm-hmm. And for this, the standard model of particle physics in particular, it, it does extremely well in, in many respects. One could even say frustratingly well, because like in all our searches of, of looking for new interactions, looking for new particles here at CERN, at the Large Hadron Collider, we always keep confirming the predictions that the standard model makes with incredible accuracy. Mm-hmm. But we still know the model is not complete. And the reason we know that the model is not complete basically comes from cosmology. So there's observations that we make about the dynamics of the universe or the properties of the universe, which are simply in contradiction with this model, which tells us that there's ingredients missing. And we have a rough idea of what these ingredients are, or rather maybe instead of one rough idea, we have a hundred rough ideas. And Mm -hmm. the big question is, which one of these is correct? Is any one of these correct? And how can we make progress in, in understanding these missing parts better. So to give you some keywords, things like uh, dark energy, dark matter, those are some of the open questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we know, basically, you say they are open because first, we cannot really explain them fully for now, as we said in episode 93. But also, we know that the standard model breaks down at, at, those, like, at those points and cannot explain them, right? So that's basically what you're trying to understand. Why does the standard model fail here and how can we actually explain these phenomena? Correct. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. And so concretely, what does that research look like? Maybe could you share a, an example of a discovery or a theoretical development in this field that has the potential to reshape our understanding of particle physics? You mean a discovery in the past that did that or a discovery, potential discovery in the future that, that I would has say the both. potential? Yeah, okay. both if you so yeah. Let's start with the past. So one observation, for example, was rotation curves of, of galaxies. Mm-hmm. So people were looking at, at, at galaxies in the sky and they were looking at how fast the stars were rotating, which you can do by measuring the redshift of, of the stars because as they move away from us, the light gets slightly redder. As they move towards us, the light gets slightly bluer. Yeah. And if you have a, a, an object on a stationary orbit and you the orbit for the velocity, mm-hmm. I mean, actually even knowing the, the orbit and the mass of stars enough, then you can estimate how much mass you need in a center in order to make that a stable orbit. Mm-hmm. And so that's just Newton dynamics, high school physics. Mm-hmm. And what people observed is that the, the mass that you needed in the center in order to put these stars on the orbits that were being observed was much, much bigger than the mass you would have inferred just by counting stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you can say, okay, well, counting stars is obviously not enough, right? Because there's going to be planets are not luminous. So there's going to be a bit of an offset. But you would have expected that counting stars would give you a good estimate. And it turned out it was completely off. So it turned out it was a big amount of something that has a, a, an attractive uh, gravitational force. Mm-hmm. And in the center of the galaxies, or like in a halo around the galaxies, which was invisible to our telescopes. And that is is basically what I'm coined the term dark matter, because it has a gra- gravitational pull of matter, just yeah. like everything else. But it's dark, meaning we can't see it. And not seeing it means not only we don't pick it up with telescopes, but also all other type of experiment that we've performed to date, trying to find this stuff and this stuff should be around everywhere, right? So it's not that there's none of it on Earth. It's just that it, it's so incredibly weakly interacting with yeah. all the instruments that we build that it's very difficult to see. And then observations, I mean, more observations, particularly cosmological observations, reveal that there's actually five times more of this dark matter than there is of what we call ordinary matter, right? So ordinary matter is everything that we know of on Earth and everything that we can describe with our standard model of particle physics, meaning that there's really a lot of stuff out there that we don't know what it is. Hmm. That's just one example. Um, And that kind of gave very clear indication that the standard model of particle physics is incomplete and that we're not only missing a little bit, but that we're actually missing a very big bit of the picture. Hmm. And in uh, along the same line of thought, what would really be a groundbreaking discovery if one of the many experiments looking for such a dark matter particle, if they would actually find something. I mean, even if they don't find anything. If a particular experiment doesn't find anything, then okay, you still learn something because you could probably exclude some class of models. But if one of them actually made a discovery and we would have kind of a very clear indication of 
which direction to, to go in when we're trying to describe these dark matter particles, that would be a complete game changer. Yeah, for sure. And so these kind of experiments are underway at CERN in particular, right? These days. Yeah, at CERN and across the world. I mean, it's something you can look for when in a collider because mm -hmm. <laughs> you can always hope that if as your collider reaches higher and higher energy or you have just more and more particles that you're colliding, you'll eventually reach the threshold for producing these particles. And then you can find indirect traces of them in decay channels. Or you basically have some sort of, not a collider, but basically just a very big detector volume somewhere. So a very big amount of a noble gas, for example, or even water. And then you wait basically for a, a dark, you like have to shield it very well against everything else. And then you wait for some dark matter particle to have yeah. one of these very rare interactions with one of the atoms of your detector. Mm -hmm. And you're looking for that interaction. And there's a, yeah, there's a range of experiments underway looking for very different types of these dark matter candidates. Yeah. So, but we've been hoping that we'll find it any day now, basically since I don't know. I mean, basically since I do physics. <laughs> so, so we don't know. It could be around the corner or it could be very well hidden. Yeah. These kind of experiments, I would, I think I would, I would not be able to work on them at least full time. <laughs> It's awful. Like you're just waiting for something and you cannot control anything. Oh, there's, there's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of stuff to do. You're not just waiting. I mean, because you're okay. basically constantly fighting to reduce noise, reduce background, yeah, that's understand yeah. noise, understand background, mm -hmm. um, argue with somebody who's making noise in, in the building next door and is disrupting <laughs> your experiment. So <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. That's yeah. That's something you have to deal all the time deal with all the time, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I would be also incredibly stressed out. So did the, did the, I think it, a lot of them are helium pools or something like that. Correct. So like, did the helium pool move tonight or not? I mean, it's just, I would be incredibly stressed out. Yeah. So that's actually very interesting to, to hear about that because I, I find these kind of experiments absolutely, absolutely fascinating and where does your work come into that picture? Personally, what's, what kind of those? So you're part of these big teams, right? In physics, like you see a, a physics paper, it's like most of the time, a lot of people, because a lot of you are very, many of you are, are very specialized in what they do. And so you bring one of the brick to the paper. So you in this kind of work, what do you do? What do you bring? The papers really with the many hundreds of authors, they're usually the experimental collaborations. Mm -hmm. So as a theorist, I usually have whatever, two, three, four co-authors on, on a paper. A lot. <laughs> so we build, of course, very heavily on, on the results of these big collaboration papers. Mm -hmm. But largely the work that I concretely do is, is with much smaller groups of people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I basically have two main approaches to this. One is starting from really standard model of particle physics and mm -hmm. trying to come up with possible extensions of that, which kind of makes sense within the framework that, that the standard model is written in. So it makes sense within the symmetries that, that they are, makes sense within the framework of quantum field theory and, and address some of these open problems that we have in cosmology. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the question is, okay, once you've constructed such a inherently consistent model, what sort of implications might that have in various types of experiments, right? So that can be experiments like the Large, Large Hadron Collider, it yeah. can also be some astrophysical observations or it can be some cosmological observations. So that's one approach and coming more from the, the fundamental mathematical theory of it. And my other approach is more the lamppost approach, meaning, well, you, you look where you can look, right? And you hope that nature is kind. And there, the, my approach is to say, okay, what types of probes do we have of the universe of astrophysical processes? Try and understand as much as possible about those and then see what type of models or what kind of types of building blocks of models you could test with these types of observations. And there, for example, the new big player in the game are, are gravitational waves. Yeah. Because now since the first discovery with LIGO and now a tentative discovery in a different frequency range this year with the pulsar timing arrays, that's opening up a completely new way of observing our universe. And so there's the, the potential for for big excitement in, in that field. So I'm, I'm also just involved in trying to understand as much as possible about how gravitational waves can reveal something about the universe. That's actually fascinating. So yeah, talk to us a bit more about that, basically. 
What can gravitational waves tell us about the universe? And maybe redefine quickly what gravitational waves are for listeners. So gravitational waves, we think of them as perturbations of the metrics or perturbations of of space-time. So the type of gravitational waves that we've already seen with LIGO and, and Virgo, which are big Michelson interferometers. So the type of gravitational waves we've seen come from pairs of black holes, which are circling each other and then finally merging. So these are like extremely massive objects. And as you might know, a massive object creates, if you want, a dent in space-time. And if you have two of them, just their dance around each other really sends out ripples of this kind of space-time perturbations out into the universe. If you're very close to a black hole, these ripples will be quite significant. But then you'd also have all sorts of other problems, right? Because if you're really close to a black hole, (laughs) then you have a lot of problems. So by the time these gravitational waves reach us, they've spread out very far, meaning the amplitude is very much decreased. So by the time they reach us, these are typically very small, like tiny perturbations in space-time. Mm-hmm. So it's not something we have to worry about in, in everyday life. Rather, we need to build an extremely sensitive detector to even pick them up. Hmm. And so, so far, the observations that we've made are this type of observations. So observations of, of these black holes merging, which happened, I mean, still at the distance of megaparsecs or gigaparsecs from here, right? So, so quite far away on cosmological scales, but nevertheless, Compared to the lifespan of the universe, these are still fairly recent events. So at the moment, we're, we're using this to learn because as a new way to learn about the universe surrounding us or the more recent universe or the relatively recent universe, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the promise is or the, the hope is that in principle, because these gravitational waves are so weakly interacting with everything, in principle, even gravitational waves generated in the very, very early universe, when the universe was not yet transparent to photons when no other messenger could escape this this primordial soup. Mm-hmm. Gravitational waves could. So in principle, if we detected them today, they could reveal information about extremely early times in the universe when the temperatures in the universe were extremely high, when all the fundamental particles existed as fundamental particles, and when we can really probe these constituents of the standard model or of, of any model beyond the standard model. So that's the ultimate hope. But it's challenging because we don't know what is the amplitude of these gravitational waves from the very early universe. And hmm. so we first need to understand the gravitational waves generated in the late universe, make sure we fully understand that before we look for a, a fainter signal. Very similar to with photons, right? You basically first need to understand all the light coming from the nearby universe, coming from the galaxy. And only when you have very good understanding of your foregrounds can you go and can you look for fainter light that is coming from earlier times. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Because also those waves are like so, so much weaker that also I'm guessing you have to be a bit more aware of what you're looking for because otherwise it's even harder. And to understand, do we know if just one black hole, for instance, so for instance, the black hole at the center of our galaxy, is it emitting also gravitational waves? But since it's not orbiting another one, at least that we know of, the gravitational waves are weaker, so we cannot see them? Or do we know that, no, you have to have the collision of two massive objects to get those gravitational waves? Yeah, so a single black hole won't do it because anything hmm. that is perfect spherical symmetry won't do it. That that has to do with the fact that these gravitational waves are, are tensor modes, right? So they have two, two Lorentz indices, and, and there's something mm-hmm. that's spherical symmetric is a scalar quantity. So a single black hole won't do it. So you need two, or you need a black hole and another massive object, say a black hole and a neutron star. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or anything else that breaks spherical symmetry, right? So I don't know, you dancing around, right? That will in principle generate gravitational waves. They're just <laughs> very small. Thank you. I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I see. Okay. Yeah, so it's very it, it's really the density of the objects that that count. Uh, yeah. Again, yeah, you yeah, mentioned a large concentration of mass and in some asymmetric way. So some sort of violent process, which is condensing a lot of energy, a lot of mass. Yeah. But in, in some way that is moving in a bit of a non-trivial way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Even though I like thinking about these things because it's so hard to imagine. Right? Like the power of these collisions must be just incredibly devastating. I would love to see that in a way, but that's like, it's really impressive and at the same time, really frightening. 
Yeah, yeah. So the the gravitational waves that we we saw with LIGO, there we think mm -hmm. it's something like two black holes, roughly after the mass, like roughly ten solar masses each colliding, mm -hmm. or a bit more, and the energy that is just the energy that is released into gravitational waves corresponds roughly to the mass of our sun. So it's a yeah. huge amount of energy. And the, the now the gravitational waves that we think we might have seen with these pulsar timing arrays, these are even more massive objects. These are really the, the large black holes, right? Like the one in the center of our galaxy that we see, we think we see colliding. So this is two, two far away galaxies, each mm -hmm. with their big, massive 10 to the six solar mass black hole in the center. And when they collide, that's the signal that, that we expect. So that's a massive event, right? I mean, two, two galaxies colliding. Yeah, you don't want to be close to witness that. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's for sure. So these are absolutely fascinating topics. And I'm wondering, what are the main challenges in understanding these topics right now? How do you folks as researchers in this field address them? That's a broad question, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a really broad question. Yeah. <laughs> There's different levels of challenges, right? So when it comes mm -hmm. down, for example, to let's say something concrete, understanding these signals, which we think might be from gravitational waves. Yeah. Then, I mean, a lot of the problems boil down to making sure this is a signal and not a background or a, a noise source. Mm -hmm. So that means, of course, building experiments that are extremely precise measurement devices. It, it also means a lot of modeling of the various components that go in and both on from the theoretical side and also from the experimental side. Yeah. And then when you get the data again to, to cross check, okay, this is really the type of signal. Do we have, do we have a way, a robust way, distinguish what we call a signal from something that we call a background? Mm -hmm. uh, take it into account that we not, might not have thought of every possible background, right? So do we really have a telltale signal of what we think the signal would look like, right? And, and typically all these analyses are done as blind analysis, right? So you think about what signal you need to see in order to be convinced that this is what you're looking for mm -hmm. before you open the box and, and, and look at your data. That's one challenge, more kind of on the data analysis or, or experimental side. The other challenge, maybe more on the theory side. So when you're building models, which extend to standard model of particle physics, there's, I mean, there's many options and you need some sort of guiding principle. And I mean, if you're lucky, you have data to guide you. You have some sort of anomaly, something you feel like, okay, Here's the weak point, right? Here's where you need to poke, where you need to extend. Sometimes you have things like simplicity, right? Which yeah. hope is a good principle, though, of course, you never know that's a good principle. Yeah, yeah. And recently, that's really been a bit of a challenge, precisely because the standard model works as well as it does. Mm -hmm. There's no, I mean, sure, we know we need to explain dark matter, right? But there's many possible options how the that dark matter could or could not tie into the standard model. Yeah. And there's... No very obvious way, at the, like there's no obvious weak point at the standard model. There's no precise weak point. I mean, there's a, a global weakness, that things I cannot explain, but it's not quite clear where exactly it needs to be refined or, or extended. And that, I think, for, in the past, it was more clear, or people had pretty clear ideas, right? And then there was pretty obvious things that needed to be checked, right? So we needed to find the Higgs particle, right? So the last missing particle of the standard model. And then we also thought... Because the, I mean, the Higgs particle has certain properties, which kind of led us to believe that we thought, okay, once we find the Higgs particle, we should also be finding other particles somehow related to this particle that would naturally uh, explain certain open challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, but the fact that we haven't found them and that we're just testing with higher and higher accuracy and we're just getting the predictions of the standard model or confirming the predictions of the standard model without finding any small deviations is making it very hard to decide a bit What's, yeah, how should the extension work, right? And, and how should the extension, is the extension in such a way that we can actually test it with the tools that we have, right? Or do we need to think differently? I mean, either different types of experiments, but also maybe different theoretical concepts, because so far, we, most extensions of the standard model kind of rely on the same theoretical framework, quantum field theory. And then they, within that framework, you try different things. But the fact that kind of we haven't really breakthrough there may be indicating, okay, whatever, it's just at high energies, which we can't reach, or it may be indicating the framework we're thinking in is maybe not the best. There's many questions, many levels of questions yeah. uh, that can hmm. be addressed. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And I'm curious, basically, what would you like to be true? If you could choose something that at some point 
nature will tell you what would you like to see and to observe and the kind of consequences it would have on our understanding of how the universe works. Well, I would mainly like nature to produce something that we can give us something to work with. I would like nature to be kind enough to produce some sort of signal, be it in dark matter, be it in gravitational waves, be it at a collider, that actually gives us something which is accessible with the tools, the experiments that we have at the moment. Because it could simply be that all these completions of the standard model live at an extremely high energy scale, which is simply inaccessible to any type of collider we can build on Earth. Um, mm -hmm. And that will make it not impossible, but very much harder to, to actually unravel these questions. Huh. Yeah, for sure. So that's one part of the work you're doing, right? All that work around gravitational waves, which are, of course, related to gravity, <laughs> in case people didn't understand. Oh, and by the way, on the podcast, I had another researcher called Laura Mansfield, and she's working on gravity waves, which are not the same as gravitational waves. So that's quite confusing. But yeah, that's also actually a very interesting field of research, basically gravity waves and the relationship with climate. And that's all here on Earth. But that's also related to gravitational waves in a way, in the sense that it's uh, big objects basically on Earth. So like the Everest or the Mont Blanc or all these big, massive mountains, which actually distort a bit the gravitational field around them. And that has impact on the climate. And how do you model that? And Bayesian modeling gets here because that's really useful because you don't have a lot of sample size. So yeah, I, re I recommend listening to episode 64. I put that in the show notes. I was fascinated by that, the fact that gravity, you can study that here on Earth, but also it has incredible effects in the universe and at, at masses that we cannot even imagine, right? With the collisions of black holes and collisions of neuron stars. So that's really something I find fascinating. And actually, do you can you make the distinction between a neuron star and a black hole for listeners? And yeah, why? So that they understand a bit the difference between both. So a neutron star is made of neutrons, meaning it's a very densely packed environment of nuclear matter. Mm -hmm. And a black hole is even more denser, right? So a black hole is really the densest object that we can imagine, where kind of matter has really any type of matter has really just collapsed into this object and you don't care mm -hmm. any much anymore what it was initially made out of, right? If it just has one one property, it can also spin, but basically it only has one property, which has which is its mass, right? And then it may mm -hmm. also have spin if it's rotating, but it doesn't matter anymore what it was made out of. So one, mm -hmm. one consequence of that is that if you have two neutron stars merging, as they get very close to each other, their gravitational force will, will slightly distort them. So they can be mm -hmm. a little bit deformed because despite that they are very compact and very dense, um, they can still be slightly deformed as they get very close to each other. Whereas two black holes will really stay perfectly spherical as they approach each other. And so oh, you can okay. tell the difference between the two by looking at the details of the gravitational wave signal as you approach this merger event. Hmm. Okay. I didn't know that that black hole stayed spherical even as they approached each other. Is that because they are so dense that they cannot be deformed? Yeah, it's basically because, yeah, because they're so dense and because they, I mean, in some sense, I mean, despite that they are physical objects in our universe, in some sense, they become a rather mathematical object. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, like a perfect <laughs> sphere that you cannot, that you cannot deform or do anything on. It's really weird. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's crazy that we're actually seeing them, right? I mean, yeah. Um, both in these gravitational wave signals, as also then with direct observations with with optical telescopes, hmm. as like this first picture of the the black hole in our galaxy and in, in the neighboring galaxy. Yeah, yeah. And so your work on gravity, I'm curious to understand because here, obviously, when we talk about gravity, is so weak that you have to have so massive objects to really see its its effects. And also it needs a lot of time. So obviously here we're dealing with the largest scales of the universe. But you also work on particle physics, as you were saying, and you work at CERN where particle physics is one of the biggest fields. So I'm curious, how does that study of gravity intersect with the study of particle physics, especially when we consider 
but the phenomena you work on, so especially black holes or the early universe. So, I mean, gravity is, well, I mean, in anybody who's, I don't know, fallen down the stairs will not say gravity is a weak force, but indeed, right? On, on Earth, when we compare the force of gravity to the other forces that we have, sort of the forces that bind atoms together, things like that, gravity is extremely weak. So when we mm -hmm. perform any particle physics experiment on Earth, we just completely neglect gravity and, it, and we're not introducing any error in our, in our estimations. Now, gravity can become important, as you say, either if you have some very massive objects like black holes or if you have very far distances. Because yeah. here on Earth, okay, we have so much matter interacting so strongly that we don't care about gravity. But yeah. the universe as a whole is actually pretty empty. So in most of the universe, there's, there's just nothing. What leading order, there's nothing. And that means that on, on those scales, because there's no matter which has any interactions, but on those large scales, it's really gravity that is describing the dynamics of the universe. And so if we want to understand both kind of the dynamics of the universe today, but also extrapolating back in past, if we want to understand the evolution of the universe, the birth of the universe, then we need to understand gravity. And one of the big puzzles, for example, is that at the moment, observations tell us that we are in a phase of the universe where the universe is not only expanding, but expanding in an accelerated way. And that's pretty weird because normally you think if you just have a bunch, bunch of matter, right? Bunch of galaxies, you think, well, they're going to have gravitational interactions between each other. So even if you somehow gave them some initial velocity, you would think, okay, well, they're going to slow down and eventually crunch back together again, because on those large scales, it's only gravity that is important. So on those large scales, you think you can either have things collapsing or you can have kind of things, at least if they're expanding, they should be slowing down. <laughs> but what we observe is the opposite, right? What we observe is really things are, the further things are away from us, the faster they are moving away. So we're, mm -hmm. we're in a, a universe which is expanding faster and faster. And that is also gravity driving that. It's just not the kind of the usual form of gravity that we know on Earth, that gravity is attractive. But in some sense, you can call it a repulsive force of gravity. or It's a, a, a gra part of gravity that, that acts as a pressure that drives the universe apart. And that is what we coin dark energy. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, the term dark just implies we don't really understand and we can't see it. And energy basically comes from observations that it has this effect of driving the energy, of driving, driving the universe apart. And so it acts as a type of energy in the expansion history of our universe and concretely today. But we don't really, so we can model it, but we can't, we don't really fundamentally understand what it is. Okay. And so understanding that and understanding how the universe evolved, not only today, but in the past, that then immediately ties back into particle physics because going back in time in an expanding universe means you go to a, a smaller universe where everything was much more dense, much more hot. You end up mm -hmm. in this primordial soup of particles. Yeah. So you're looking at particles at high temperatures, particles mm -hmm. when they're really not bound in atoms and molecules, but when they exist really in their fundamental nature. And that's basically a, a lab to study particle physics. So that's how the, the connection works between these very large scales of the universe and then the very smallest particles that we study in that Hmm, I see. And yeah, it's because then it's, it's because you're going back to the early universe where basically the structure that we have today of the universe thought didn't apply because it didn't exist yet. Correct. We go hmm. back to when everything was really just this hot primordial soup of, of fundamental particles. We try to understand how different properties of this soup, meaning different possible extensions of the standard model, would leave traces, the evolution of the universe, so would leave traces in astrophysical and cosmological observations that we can make today. Mm -hmm. I see. And these days, what's a specific um, experiment or, or project that you're involved in this field? And what would be the, the main question that this project is trying to answer? A big project I'm involved in, right? So this is uh, many hundreds, thousands of people working together is the LISA project. That's a future space-based gravitational wave observatory. It's going to be a, an ESA mission. The idea is to have three satellites circling around the sun on an orbit similar to the Earth. So following Earth on an orbit around the sun. These satellites will be two and a half million kilometers apart. They will exchange laser links. So mm -hmm. they will be shooting, there will be lasers going between all combinations of the satellites. And using these lasers, the idea is to measure very precisely distance between these satellites as they orbit the sun. 
And the idea is that if a gravitational wave comes, since it's a kind of little ripple in, in, in space-time, it will change very slightly the distance between the, the satellites. And so by looking for this, looking for these, these little variations in the distance between the satellites, the goal is to look for gravitational waves. And being in space has the big advantage that a lot of the noise that you have to deal with on Earth is, is not there. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that you can reach much better sensitivities than you could on Earth. That makes sense. Also, although I'm guessing the sun can be noisier at, at times. <laughs> but it's all a question of frequency, right? So you need to yeah. find a frequency band which is clean. Mm, I but see. yeah, I mean, yeah. there's obviously huge technological challenges in implementing a mission like this and many things that can go wrong. But this is why you need really a lot of people with a lot of different expertise coming together. Um, and also a lot of money to, to build <laughs> an instrument like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, just the engineering part of that. Is you have to launch three satellites first. That's already hard. And then you have to put them in orbit around the sun and that they still can communicate with each other. It's just, and they are extremely far apart from each other. So just that part is absolutely incredible that we can do that. Not right. I mean, we hope we can do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that's just incredibly fascinating. And so what's the ETA on this mission? When will the satellites go up? Theoretically. <laughs> so the, the hope is to launch in the early 2030s, mm-hmm. which seems a long way from now, but it's really not. <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, it takes a while to, to build a satellite and also to develop all the kind of the data analysis pipelines that you need. Yeah. Make sure you have all the sensors on board that you might need to perform whatever type of cross-checks. Yeah. Make sure you didn't put anything on board, which generates a bunch of noise. Because once it's up there, it's up there, right? You can't. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, it's send. not in, it, it's not in Earth orbit. To... Exactly. Yeah. You cannot find it, send anybody to repair it. So once it's up no. there, it's up there. So you really have to think of every possible complication beforehand. Hmm. Yeah, which is quite daunting. <laughs> I have to do that for my own statistical models where I probe them and I'm like, okay, where can the model fail? What could be the potential issues? Uh, it's already stressing me out but then if you have to do that for something you cannot go back to that's just incredibly daunting right if you think a code release is stressful right then then imagine this (laughs) no yeah oh my god but so so fascinating i mean and personally what's your part in this project for instance in the lisa project so um, i'm in charge of coordinating research on what we call stochastic backgrounds so these Mm -hmm. are so the, the signals we talked about so far, in particular, the ones we see by LIGO are what we call transient signals, meaning mm-hmm. most of the time the detector actually sees nothing, just noise. And then from time to time, you have a rather or relatively strong signal. You see it, then it's gone. So if kind of that's your data analysis challenge, then okay, you can calibrate your detector in the signal-free moments. You can learn all about your properties of the noise and you can have a good noise model. And then when you get a signal, you can do a pretty good signal-to-noise discrimination. Now, with LISA, the situation is going to be very different mm-hmm. because we're going to have, because it's such a sensitive instrument, we're going to have lots and lots of stuff going on all the time. So we're basically not going to have signal-free time. So we're dealing with kind of measuring all these different signals and the noise at the same time. And at the same time, the idea is that we might have stochastic backgrounds. So stochastic backgrounds could, they're not transient signals, but there's more like a white noise, which is there at all times. They could be coming from unresolved astrophysical sources, so unresolved black hole mergers that are out of the range of our our detector, so we can't individually detect them, but they just contribute to some confusion noise. Or they could be these signals from the very early universe, which is, of course, the ones that I'm actually after. But so you have to dig them out between all these loud transient signals, between these possible astrophysical noise-like signals, which look very similar to the kind of the cosmological noise-like signal that you will be looking for. Uh, and of course, the words are very similar to, to instrument noise that you might have mismodeled or misunderstood. So what I'm working on is, okay, A, on, on okay, understanding the possible models for these different components, in particular for the cosmological sources, but also trying to understand how could we, if we actually get some actual data, how can we actually disentangle all of these components and how can we really make the most of the mission, extract as much information as possible, which with all these kind of overlapping signals and challenges. Yeah, yeah. I'm guessing that uh, having to do that 
not in a few months is something you appreciate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there, there's, I mean, yeah, there's many challenges aren't there. Obviously, many people working on it. And luckily, as you say, luckily, we don't have to solve this in a couple of months because yeah. we're basically also counting on things like computing power and so on, increasing new methods becoming available. But yeah, so it's, but still, I mean, the, the development has to happen now because if we kind of figure, okay, we need a certain type of sensor or some certain ty type of output data that would help us to discriminate these different signals, yeah. we can't come along with that when the mission is already built or even worse, already launched. So you can't wait till you see the data to decide how you're going to do the analysis. You at least have to have a very good idea of how you're going to do the analysis before you see the data. And then maybe you can refine once, once you see the data. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And actually this kind of work that you do in theoretical physics or that kind of project you just described, it really involves the development of models, of hypotheses. And I'm curious if you have some favorite hypotheses or models or the most intriguing theoretical ideas that you've encountered in your field and, and that you'd like to see tested. And if we could actually test them right now with our current technology. Good, good question. I must say, I don't have a, a particularly favorite model. I don't feel, I don't know, protective ownership of any, of any particular idea. I'm more the type of person who I start working on something because I find it interesting. And then once I've understood it to a certain degree, I move on to the next topic. Mm -hmm. But I think there are a couple of kind of, yeah, big overarching questions, right? So if, yeah, un understanding, getting some experimental input on what dark matter is would really help a lot on the theory development side. As I mentioned, when we also have issues understanding the, the Higgs particle, understanding in particular the mass of, of the Higgs particle, which is potentially indicating there's something we don't understand properly about quantum field theory, about really the framework in which we operate, that I find is incredibly exciting because it would really mean, okay, not an add-on, not a small extension of our existing model, but really a completely revolution in how we think about things. Yeah. Um, of course, it also makes it much more difficult, right? Because you don't even have the framework. The, well, maybe we don't even have the mathematical framework to think about this. It's a, a huge step to, to take. So I, I would, I mean, that's would really be a big step, right? So I'm, I'm not sure if and how that's going to happen, if it's even necessary, right? Maybe the current framework is totally fine, but that would definitely be a development that on, on just on the pure theory side, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that would be very exciting to, to see happening. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I, I'm also really curious about that. And actually, is there one big question that you would like to see answered before you die? Your one big question that you, you'd really like the answer to? I, I think I really would like to know the answer to dark matter mm -hmm. just because that it's, well, there's, we have many very reasonable models, which can be tested, which are being tested. So we could still be unlucky and nature could choose not one of these nice and reasonable models, right? But something completely different. But that's a field where there are some very good suggestions and they can be tested. Now, unfortunately, there was one excellent suggestion, right? Which was a supersymmetry and, and the dark matter particle that, that comes with supersymmetry and would have solved, was mathematically beautiful, would have solved a ton of questions, was in, in many ways, the perfect theory, right? Unfortunately, we didn't find it. So it could still be out there, but not as a solution to all of the problems that we hoped it would solve, because if that were the case, we should already have seen it. Yeah. So something kind of being the ideal theory from our point of view doesn't mean nature actually cares and, yeah, and does sure. it that way. But yeah, so dark matter, I think it really has the potential that we could actually find it. And if we find it, that could really be a starting point of a whole new exploration of, of questions. Hmm. That's interesting that you mentioned dark matter too, because Kevin Kleif, I asked him the same question and he answered dark, ma dark matter uh, <laughs> too. So that's, that's interesting to see that it's really something that's picking up you know, in the physics space these days, where uh, it seems like we're less, let's say, we're more hopeful that we can actually start making sense of it and, and probing the universe in a way that will give us some answers, at least to this mystery. Uh, whereas dark energy, from what I understand, we understand way less about dark energy than we understand about dark matter for now, right? Yeah, that, that's yeah. correct. And also there we have much less, I mean, we see what it does on, on, on large scales, but mm -hmm. we have also much less of an idea how to make progress. Both, both, both on the theory side, there's not these kind of clear cut models 
that kind of say, yeah. okay, here's a good theory of why it is how it is, and here's how you mm-hmm. go test it. Mm-hmm. For dark energy, we have neither. Neither clicker theory that kind of says, okay, here's a good explanation, nor any way of, of probing them really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a much, it's much more in the blur. Yeah. So hopefully in 10 days, you'll come back to the, the show and we'll, we'll talk about dark energy and the latest progresses. So Valerie, I think I, I have so many more questions, but you've been already very generous with your time. So before closing up, is there any topic I didn't ask you about and that you'd like to mention? I think we covered a lot, but we nothing did. particular comes yeah. to my mind. Okay. Well, then I think we can call it a show, but as usual, before letting you go, I'm going to ask you the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. First one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Yeah, that's actually a really tricky question because we are in this situation that I find it very hard to pinpoint where is the weak point of the standard model? Where, where should we poke it? So from the pure mm-hmm. theory side, without any experimental input, I feel like if, if I had unlimited time and resources, I wouldn't engage on a single project right now, but I would basically just try and gather a, as, as broad as possible understanding of as many concepts as possible and hope that we will eventually get some sort of data, which points us in the direction really to explore. I, mm-hmm. I don't at the moment really have a clear cut avenue where I say, this is where we'll put all my money. Mm-hmm. So wise answer where you don't put your eggs in the same basket. <laughs> and second question, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? Yeah, I think, well, we'd go for somebody dead, right? Just because that's a chance you don't get on a regular conference dinner. So I'd be really curious to talk with some of the people involved in the discovery of, of quantum mechanics. So say Heisenberg or somebody like that, because I feel like they were at the core of the field when the field was also in a, in a situation where it was not so clear cut at that time, not even clear cut that there was a need to mm. extend the current understanding because, okay, yeah. classical physics was well understood, right? And nearly all phenomena were very well understood and people were thinking, okay, physics, it, it's done. We understand nature. And it was just very small tweaks here and there that kind of were a bit confusing. So one could have easily believed everything is done and understood, go study something else, but they opened the door to the world of, of quantum physics. And with that then came quantum field theory, with that came elementary particle physics, with that came all the questions that we have today. So actually, from today's point of view, we would say, well, they understood very little, right? It was a whole bunch of new physics that was not known to them, but they didn't even know that it was not known to them because there was no glaring open question. So I'd, I'd really be curious to know how they perceived that situation and how they got to the point of opening the door to the quantum world and taking up that challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like a very fun, very fun dinner. <laughs> Please invite me. <laughs> so, well, awesome. Thanks a lot, Valerie. That was absolutely fascinating. We didn't talk a lot about stats, but I love doing these episodes from time to time where we de-zoom a bit from stats and just talk about fascinating science in general. I think it's very interesting and also quite important to put more rigorous pedagogical scientific content out there in the world. We've seen that in the recent years. So thanks a lot for doing this for us, Valerie. Uh, I will put a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Uh, also feel free to add any link to cool papers or experiments or videos that you think listeners will appreciate. And thank you again, Valerie, for taking the time and being on this show. Thank you. And I'd rest assured that, I mean, stats is still at the basis of all this, despite that we took a more, more high level approach in this discussion. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks a lot, Valerie, and see you soon on the show. This has been another episode of Learning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alexandora. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learn stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.